Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, May 11th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A Senate hearing put major pharma CEOs in the same room with the middlemen they love to blame for rising drug prices. We'll explain the copious finger pointing and occasional salience. It's a massive week for Sarepta Therapeutics, the FDA, and the future of gene therapies for rare diseases. We'll talk about the background, the stakes, and the implications of a meeting scheduled for Friday. We'll also discuss the rest of the latest news in the life sciences. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey there, my name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT, and I'm thrilled to announce the second season of Color Code, STAT's podcast on racial health inequities. In our second season, we're taking things local to my hometown of Long Island. Long Island's history is one of segregation. Um, Long Island continues to be one of the most segregated parts of our country. Where you live has a huge impact on your health. Long Island is a microcosm of racial health inequities that exist in suburbs across the country. The racial residential segregation in a place like Nassau County, starting from infant mortality to premature death and everything in between. We see that many of these causes of death are consistently higher in communities of color. We'll hear from researchers, patients, clinicians, and advocates on the health inequities Long Islanders face and how communities here are trying to close these gaps. From the front lines of a battle over a landfill to the efforts to address food insecurity and disparities in maternal mortality across the island. The season premieres later this spring, with episodes airing every other week. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together, let's raise the alarm. It's May 11th, and today is the day the U.S. is set to end the public health emergency around COVID-19. And of course, this comes after a week that was filled with similar news. The World Health Organization declared an end to the Public Health Emergency of International Concern, or FAKE, as it is called, according to our beloved Helen Branswell. Um, That was a really big moment as well. You know, I think much of the world, uh, as Mike Osterholm uh, was saying uh, from SIDRAP, you know, decided that the pandemic had already ended, uh, you know, a while back. But um, this was a really important declaration. It was uh, one that the World Health Organization established in January of 2020. Um, The WHO has said that was really the important declaration about the risk that this virus posed to the world, as opposed to when it actually called this a pandemic, which happened in March of 2020. Um, And then, of course, we got the news that CDC director Rochelle Walensky will be stepping down uh, at the end of June. And Helen reported uh, that was her decision. Um, You know, it's an interesting tenure to look back on because she came in in the middle of COVID and now she is leaving right around the time that this public health emergency is being declared over, at least in its, you know, sort of acute form. Um, What you hear from the public health community is that obviously this virus isn't leaving. 
Um, and the way we will deal with it will change. But, you know, this sort of acute stage, this emergency phase is ending as of today. And I think one thing that's really interesting about where we are right now as a country is that, you know, Dr. Fauci has left his post as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Uh, Dr. Walensky now stepping down from the CDC. Something that I'm sort of hearing from the D.C. world is that these could be really tough positions to fill, you know, that people may not want to do these jobs. And so where, do the, where does that sort of leave us as a country? How do you guys kind of look at that? I think that's a really reasonable point, both because those positions previously, I mean, CDC director is a high profile position, but never more so, at least in my lifetime, than during COVID-19. And likewise, the politicization of pandemic response, as it were, and even just public health broadly, would make the concept of going through, for example, a Senate confirmation hearing uh, for a, a high profile public health position in the federal government, probably daunting, if not prohibitive, maybe, for, for potential candidates. So I, I think that's a good point going forward. It'll be interesting to see the just how much of a priority that is for the Biden administration now heading toward re-election, or if this is something we see, which we saw from the Trump administration and from the early Biden administration, positions that have interim uh, heads for long periods of time because it's just low on the list of priorities for expending political capital vis-a-vis -vis other things that are facing the administration at the moment. So, Meg, when I was listening to you, it actually struck me, as, and this is going to be kind of just a weird aside, but there is a particularly low-quality biotech company that I know of that has consistently used COVID as an excuse for like missing deadlines and not doing the things that they're supposed to do. And even as recently as last night in their latest uh, 10Q filing, they have continued to blame COVID for not doing the things they're supposed to do. So I thought to myself, well, that's an excuse that's not really going to work very long, long now, now that the, uh, the emergency is over. But anyway. Wait, are we not naming this funny. biotech company now? I want to know who you're talking about. Uh, that'll, that'll tell you off the air. Okay. <laughs> I think our, you know, if you like what we do, uh, you know, and the little funny that we put in at the end now is going to be guess which biotech company Adam was referring there to. There exactly. will be a prize yeah. for the person who gets it right. It's a copy yes. with Adam. Well, speaking of debatably reasonable accusations of blame and also of great segues, uh, there was a roughly three-hour hearing this week from the Senate Health Committee, or HELP Committee rather, but the H stands for health, and that's easier to say, in which uh, the CEOs of the three largest insulin manufacturers were called to testify about the cost of insulin in the United States, and for, I think, the first time, they were joined by representatives of the three largest pharmacy benefits managers who, as people are probably aware, are the counterparty in the debate over why insulin and, and really in the debate over why medicine in general in the United States has a tendency to get more expensive over the years. Um, Meg, I know you tuned into this. Uh, I, wondered, I wondered, actually, I meant to ask you if you made it through all three hours, but what did you make of the conversation? Almost all three hours. <laughs> I would say 
Um, you know, there wasn't there wasn't anything surprising. Like it was the same stuff that you hear from both of these sides of the equation. From the pharma side, of course, it was here's how much we invest in research and development. Here's why our system needs to work the way it does in areas where we don't have pricing freedom. There isn't as much investment. We don't have access to new medicines as quickly. Um, you know, and it's the middlemen who cause the prices to go up. And me- meanwhile, from the middlemen, the PBMs, the message was we use the lowest cost medicines. We bring prices down. Here's how much we do that. Um, it's, you know, it's the drug companies that set these high prices. And so they were, it was just kind of funny to see them sitting at the table next to each other. Um, be- because, you know, so much of this has been virtual over the last few years. These are finally happening in person. And really my overwhelming sort of impression of, of the entire thing was just like, Bernie Sanders is like finally getting his moment of like what he's wanted to do for so long now that he's chairman of this committee. You know, he just gets to sit up there and it's always very funny. He did this in the Moderna hearing as well. He's so polite to the guests for coming, you know, the the people who are testifying. You know, he's like, thank you for making time for this. We really appreciate you coming down. And then once he starts, he's like, and you're a terrible person and you're a criminal and you should go to jail. You know, I mean, he doesn't actually say they should go to jail, but like. Um, so that was kind of my impression. Did you guys have any um, takeaways? Was there anything that surprised you? Well, I thought, you know, Damien, to your point about, you know, kind of who wears the black hat in these scenarios, you know, obviously the, the biopharma industry likes to blame pharmacy benefits managers, the PBMs, the middlemen for for uh, these higher drug prices. You know, it specifically calls them out for that spread pricing in which, you know, they sort of pocket the, the savings instead of... Uh, passing it on to consumers. Uh, but I thought it was interesting, and, and reading Sarah Overwell's story, uh, she, she's the reporter who wrote about this, the hearing uh, yesterday, it seemed like Republicans are kind of sympathetic to the PBMs. That was interesting, yeah. I mean, well, th- one contrast to the hearing with Stefan Bonsell, Meg, that you mentioned earlier about the price of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine was that was much more partisan, where, yeah, I mean, Bernie Sanders, to your point, asked basically, what does it feel like to be the face of corporate greed? And then Senator Mitt Romney said, basically, sir, I'd like to climb over this table and shake your hand. And so there was such a polarity between the responses. Less the case here. Now, like Senator Bill Cassidy and a few other Republicans were more sympathetic to PBMs, perhaps than, or at least than their Democratic colleagues. But by and large, there did seem to be something of an acknowledgement among all the committee members that this system is not functioning properly. And I think there is more of a sympathy toward the drug companies among Republicans by virtue of them being the ones who, at least generally, invent stuff and have a finite amount of time to make profit on it. And that's something that Republicans will often defend their ability to do. Whereas with the PBMs, there is that kind of confusing, like, what exactly is it that you do. And, you know, Senator Susan Collins put up a chart that I think we're probably all familiar with showing the, I'm going to describe a visual thing. So this is going to go well as well as I can make it go, showing the net prices of insulin in this case, which is what drug makers actually pocket, being relatively static and kind of trending downward. And then a line above them, which is the list prices, the prices that are often publicized, constantly escalating, which is to say there's a yawning chasm between them that only grows. And Senator Collins pointed at that and said, who can explain where this money is going? And of course, Sanofi, uh, Lilly, and Novo Nordisk would say it's going into the pockets of the PBMs. And the PBMs would say, we return you know, upwards of 90% of the discounts we negotiate to our clients. And then we have data on how the out-of-pocket costs for the end user 
consistently goes up. So there's this, I think actually the Novo CEO described it as a Bermuda Triangle, this like cash funnel going somewhere. Somebody's making money off of this. And I think the acknowledgement of the panel that like that's bad created conceivably room for uh, not consensus, but some sort of compromise legislatively as to regulating it. But that being said, this discussion preceded what is happening Thursday, which is markup of legislation that would ban spread pricing, uh, Adam, as you just described, for PBMs. And just based on what was said by Senator uh, Rand Paul and Senator Cassidy, it doesn't seem like that specific legislation has Republican support. So whether the like seeming agreement between the senators on the problem here will actually lead to like substantive legislation that would have a prayer of passing Congress and becoming law, that seems a little flimsier. So another drug pricing news this week, sort of, if that, this is like a day of sort of flimsy segues, but we're going to go with it. Um, <laughs> the drug company called EQRX had a very interesting announcement. This was a company founded uh, on the bold premise that they were going to dramatically undercut the prices of a lot of um, existing medicines, including uh, notably the class of PD-1 cancer drugs. Um, There was a lot of skepticism when they launched, and that skepticism, I think, maybe turned out to be the right approach. Uh, Adam, tell us exactly what happened because my description was terrible. <laughs> yeah. So this week, it was sort of a, a pivot of a pivot for EQRX. Uh, as you mentioned, Meg, you know, these EQRX was founded or, or sort of launched back in January of 2020 um, on this premise that you know they were going to develop innovative cancer drugs primarily. Uh, and again, by innovative, meaning like not generic drugs, they were going to sort of go after all the sort of hot cancer targets with and develop these drugs. But at the same time, when they got approved, they were going to price them significantly lower than their competitors. And when you asked EQRX like how they were going to do this, it, there was sort of a black box and they kind of hemmed and hawed and didn't really tell you. But really what it ended up being is that they were going to find drugs uh, that were being developed in China uh, and they were going to bring them over to the United States. And then they were going to kind of do they were going to create uh, partnerships or contracts with insurers and hospitals to kind of negotiate for lower prices. So fast forward, you know, that that plan actually last year blew up, right? They could not do that, partly because the FDA decided that eh, we don't really love uh, Chinese cancer drugs, particularly Chinese cancer drugs that are only developed in China. So that kind of put a big uh, uh, hurdle in the way of in in front of EQRX, and they sort of had to abandon this whole innovative but lower price drug pricing model. And then they kind of pivoted to, well, we'll still develop a bunch of cancer drugs. We'll just price them high like everybody else does. Um, again, the new thing this week is now it's like another pivot off that. Whereas, well. We're not going to develop a lot of cancer drugs. We're going to develop a single cancer drug. And we're also going to lay off a majority of our employees. Um, but we still have a billion dollars. So we're good. And that was kind of the news this week. And um, I think it was sort of met with, I don't know, how would I describe? You know, I think people sort of look at it like, you know, why maybe like, why aren't you actually just shutting down? I don't know, Damien, isn't that, I mean, that's not kind of, I know we were talking about that internally when the news came out, like, why are they still in business? Like, why don't they just return that billion dollars that they happen to have in the bank, you know, give it back to shareholders and just, you know, close up and it was a good try, but move on. Yeah, that was, I think, a common 
response among people in that, you know, EQRX, as you mentioned, launched with this this bold vision and, and went public, likewise with this vision through a SPAC back when we don't have to get into the whole SPAC phenomenon. But either way, uh, if you own shares in this company, you acquired them presumably thinking you were betting on this strategy. Now that the strategy's changed, it would follow logic that the company, or now that the strategy has proved to be untenable, I should say, it would follow logic that the company would simply return that capital to shareholders. That is not something that biotech companies are in the habit of doing. So I personally was not surprised that they didn't, but I understand how logically somebody could get there. The thing that I kept coming back to with this story is that, and maybe I'm I'm a kind of a mark, but I remember when the FDA made this ruling about not wanting, or, or not accepting rather, uh, data from, data on cancer drugs that were developed primarily, if not entirely, in China for reasons, basically because in China, the, you know, racial and ethnic demographics are not those of the United States. And so they, you know, made the not unreasonable deduction that that would mean that that studies conducted over there would not necessarily be applicable to the population they'd be approved for in the U.S. What made that striking, Adam, I know you remember this because you spoke to Richard Pazder about it, who, who's the head of the oncology division at the FDA, is that the FDA had previously signaled pretty much the opposite. Or at least that was yeah. that was kind of the theory, or that was the understanding of it going in. And I think that that understanding was crucial to EQRX's founding. So I was sympathetic to the company because that seemed like the rules of the game changed after they started. However, in seeing responses this week, though, I, I'm not alone in that sympathy, but I should say there are people on the other side of it. I saw a tweet from David Maris, um, a former Wells Fargo analyst, who now... I think works well, David. Where you work is not in your Twitter profile, so I don't know it off the top of my head. But here I'm going to quote from this anyway. He tweeted, "EQRX, the world did not change, and you should not be proud of the nothing you have done. This had nothing to do with any externality. It had to do with a stupid idea executed badly." So there's an there's another take on it. And I generally agree with what David Mara says. Or I mean, I don't know if it was, it was a stupid idea because I think, like to your point. Damien, I don't necessarily blame EQRX for sort of going down this let's get drugs from China route because it was very clear that the FDA for a while there seemed to uh, open its arms and doors to this idea and EQRX sort of, you know, walked through that door and wanted to do this. And then, you know, the FDA sort of just, you know, and when I say the FDA, like I said, it's really Rick Pastor. He sort of just but did this about face. And, you know, Rick Pastor sort of defends his decision and says he really didn't do that, but he really did. And so, um, you know, again, I think that I'm a little, I am sympathetic to EKRX uh, about this. But I think where, again, where I sort of lose that is just this idea, this pivot, and then the second pivot, and this idea that now this sort of very small and what is now a struggling uh biotech company. I mean, struggling with a billion dollars maybe seems a little bit weird, but like they don't <laughs> seem to have, you know, other than having this very large pile of cash, they have not done anything. And so this idea that they're now going to sort of become this successful developer of cancer drugs when they are actually competing, you know, the single cancer drug that they are actually developing now uh, is going to be competing with the, the biggest of the big cancer pharma players out there. I just find it hard to believe that they're going to be successful. But good luck. So speaking of the FDA setting the rules of a game that is already afoot, uh, this week uh, on Friday, so conceivably after you've listened to this, in which case I personally apologize, the FDA will convene a panel of outside advisors to review Sarepta Therapeutics' application for an accelerated approval for a gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And we've spoken about this 
on the podcast in the past, Adam, specifically uh, the, the depths of, of yours and Jason Math's story about how this gene therapy came to be, but then most, well, I guess most relevant to this immediate conversation, how it has been polarizing within the FDA. So now heading into this, I don't know, I was reaching for some superlative, heading into this important meeting, where do things stand? Yeah, again, this is really tough to talk about it now, because like you said, we're recording this on <laughs> Thursday, and the FDA advisory panel is on Friday. So, you know, if you're listening to this while doing chores or, or running errands on Saturday, you already know what is going to happen. So maybe, you know, if you're in the future and you know, maybe you let us know. Uh, we can we can write about it early. Um, Come back time and tell warp. Us. Woo! Um, pew, no, pew. but David, to get back to your point, um, yeah, huge hugely important advisory committee meeting where these outside experts are going to get together and they are going to chew over all of the data for Sarepta's uh, gene therapy for Duchenne. Um, I want to get, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds in there, but it, on this podcast, again, because we'll know the outcome very soon. But yeah, I mean, you know, the big issues here are whether or not this gene therapy, which makes a sort of truncated or shortened form of the muscle protein called dystrophin, you know, whether that uh, is reasonably likely to confer uh, benefit on patients. Sarepta is seeking an accelerated approval for this gene therapy. It's the first time that a company has submitted for an accelerated approval for gene therapy. Um, the sort of interesting twist is people maybe remember is that while they're submitting these data based on sort of dystrophin production, uh, Sarepta also has an ongoing phase three study, uh, which is actually going to read out uh, towards the end of the year. So there's this whole question of, you know, why don't we wait for those data, which are going to be much more definitive, which will, will sort of clearly show whether or not the gene therapy is actually improving muscle performance, you know, walking ability, uh, those kinds of uh, measures that are much more important to patients. Um, we'll know that those results relatively soon. So kind of one of the debates topics will be, you know, do we just wait for those data or do we, uh, you know, approve this now under an accelerated basis? Obviously, the company wants to uh, get it approved now because they say, you know, Duchenne is a progressive fatal disease. And so the longer we wait, the more the boys who have Duchenne you know, lose their ability to walk, they lose muscle function. So, you know, time is uh, time is of the essence here. Your story with Jason, um, you know, a few weeks back, almost a month back, really did foreshadow, I think, what we saw in the FDA documents that came out on Wednesday morning. They were very negative. You know, the reviewers questioned whether there was, uh, you know, unambiguous evidence suggesting this gene therapy actually works. Um, they also questioned the safety of administering a potentially, quote, ineffective gene therapy. And I think, you know, you it was interesting to watch the stock because typically on negative documents like that, you would see a stock really tank. And it didn't because you guys had already foreshadowed the fact that there was this dissension in the, the ranks of FDA reviewers, which is such a parallel with what we saw in 2016 with Sarepta's previous drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We also know from your report that there is support from the head of CBER, Dr. Peter Marks, the you know FDA unit that will be in charge of approving this drug. And ultimately, like we saw with Dr. Janet Woodcock and Cedar uh, the last time around, perhaps Dr. Marks, if you know, will will overrule his um, you know his staffers essentially uh, if he is supportive of this. I think one thing that we can talk about that 
won't be stale <laughs> even after Friday is what surprised you in the documents, Adam, knowing all of the reporting you did? Were there any details that came out that uh, that surprised you? Well, let me, let me just finish patting myself on the back for all the reporting we did. Okay. <laughs> Done with that. Got a good stretch there. Um, yeah. It's like you said, Meg, you know, we did a lot of the reporting. And so people sort of knew that the, you know, that there was the, the from, from, from the kind of staff review level inside the FDA, that they were highly critical of these gene therapy data. Uh, and that, and that was borne out in the briefing documents that were released on Wednesday. Um, in terms of surprises, I mean, there was a little bit like, I, I think there were some manufacturing kind of manufacturing issues or safety issues. There were some things that were brought up there about, um, you know, the, 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 the viral, the viral capsids and that essentially saying that, you know, some of the, some of the cells that are being delivered into the patients that are supposed to have the sort of, you know, the genes that are being there are empty and whether that's an issue for patients, particularly at higher doses. Um, it's you're giving like a ton of this virus and some of yeah, the viruses of don't virus. have the genetic payload. And so that exactly, could cause exactly. more side effects than you need. And giving a lot of virus raises the safety risk, right? The more virus you give is potentially a problem um, from a safety perspective. So I think that was one. You know, there was one other. I mean, it, it, it's sort of inconsequential now, but it's interesting. Um, at one point during the whole development process, the FDA actually placed the gene therapy on clinical hold um, because of a, because of a single patient who had a, a specific safety problem. Um, Sarepta had never told anybody about that clinical hold. Uh, so again, you kind of assume, like maybe they should have told people that this happened. I mean, it was resolved and the and the study was allowed to to kind of continue, but still. Sarepta never told anybody about that. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, getting to your point, though, Meg, I think you made a, you raised a really good point and a really interesting issue about kind of what this vote means. Um, as people know, these advisory panel meetings that the FDA holds, they're non-binding votes. Um, so it, does, it means that the FDA usually follows the advice of the panel, but doesn't have to. Um, and there will be a vote at the end of this panel. Essentially, you know, do you do you believe that this should be granted accelerated approval? Yes or no? Um, I think what's really interesting here is just given the state of the FDA um, with respect to, you know, even going back to sort of aducanumab, the adjuhelm stuff, and um, and or going back even further, like you said, Meg, to sort of the Sarepta Teplerson panel back in 2016, is can the FDA politically overturn the decision or the recommendation of this panel. So what I mean by that is, let's say this panel is overwhelmingly negative. Let's say we, you know, we, we don't think the data support accelerated approval. Would the FDA actually overturn that and, and approve it anyway? And I, my personal feeling is that that's going to be very, very difficult for the FDA to do today politically. I think that that, they would find that difficult. So I, I, Others may disagree with me on that. Um, we'll see what happens. But I think just given the sort of changing landscape and things that have happened, and you know, again, it's another and after another knock-on effect of kind of the Adjuhelm panel, where again, as we know, the FDA overruled uh, a, a vote, a, a unanimous vote against approval. Um, Adjuhelm. I, you know, I think that the knock-on effects of that to the point where it's going to be really hard for the FDA to do that. So we'll see what the vote looks like. One thing that's interesting on that note is, you know, Meg, as you mentioned, there are so many echoes of the 2016 situation that this very company was in um, with another medicine for Duchenne muscular dystrophy in which uh, 
basically Peter Mark's counterpart in the drugs division overruled staff to approve Sarepta's first drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We learned in documents made public after the fact that one of the reasons, well, well, first of all, one thing that we was true then is that Sarepta had not begun the confirmatory trial, which it still has not read out for that medicine, and conceivably wouldn't be able to conduct it because of the financial situation the company was in at the time. And we learned through public documents made available uh, later that that fact was on the mind of at least Janet Woodcock at FDA. What's different here, Adam, as you mentioned at the outset, is one, Sarept is in a very different financial situation now, uh, largely because of that, that approval, but also the confirmatory study is already running, already enrolled, and is slated to read out in the relatively near future. So there is a little bit more of a safety net um, when it comes to potentially not approving this drug, in addition to the sort of like political weather that is different now than it was then that you described before. Not that not that I'm predicting that the FDA will reject the drug. I have no idea what's going to happen. But the situation is interesting in that dynamic as well. At the risk of asking you about something that will probably be stale if people are listening to this after Friday, I, I have to ask because <laughs> I was so intrigued by it. You tweeted um, on Wednesday, the best part of any FDA ad com is reading the tea leaves of the invited experts as they speak and engage throughout the day. Are they supportive, critical, and most important, are they influencing other voting experts? You said on Friday, pay attention to Caleb Alexander. Why him in particular? Yeah, I'm really intrigued by that. So Caleb Alexander is a physician from Johns Hopkins. Uh, He, the reason I'm watching him closely is because he was on, not only was he on the Eteplersen, the Sarepta Eteplersen panel back in 2016, where he voted, uh, he voted against the accelerated approval of that drug. um, But he was also on the Aducanumab, the Aduhelm panel voted against that. So he's someone who's like pretty critical uh, and and who's willing to vote no, um, who's also sort of been through all the ups and downs of the recent FDA, all the controversies that you can think of, even going into some of the um, the drugs for ALS. He's been on these advisory panels. So um, the FDA has invited him to be uh, an expert, uh, uh, an advisor on this, on this panel, a voting person on this panel on Friday. And so I'm watching him to see what he talks about, what he says, what he comments. You know, it's kind of reading the tea leaves during the course of the day. This is a panel that will run all day Friday to kind of get a sense of how he's feeling and whether or not he will influence other people one way or the other. I could see him sort of being, you know, if I sort of have to start handicapping this uh, panel, and again, if you listen to this weekend, you already know, but, you know, here I'm, I'm kind of going to this blind. I sort of have him in the no camp, and uh, we'll see if that's true or not. And if he is, how influential he is, how persuasive he is to getting other people to kind of side to side with him and vote no. I might be totally wrong, and we can be recording. We'll have a podcast next week where if I'm if Caleb is like the most enthusiastic supporter of uh, accelerated approval for gene therapy, and then I will admit my my mistake. But we'll see what happens. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. 
Our senior producers are Hyacinth Ebonato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and maybe take a guess about which biotech company I was talking about who uses COVID as an excuse. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.